I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball. If I had a million dollars, I'd invest it all. I'm not smart enough to pick stocks. I'm just dumb enough to fail. I avoid get-rich-quick schemes. They'll wind me up in jail. I try not to get overexcited when I see those cryptos soar. I know there's a bubble beneath them, making us want them even more. I'm just trying to stay in balance, let compounding do the rest, make my allocations automatic, while I ride the Investopedia Express. The choppy winds of spring continue to impact the U.S. equity and cryptocurrency markets, and while stocks are stuck in a trading range, Bitcoin and its brethren are in the spin cycle. We'll break it down later in the show. And we go inside the crime of the century as we uncover how Bernie Madoff defrauded 270,000 investors in a $65 billion Ponzi scheme that went on for decades. Jim Campbell, the author of Madoff Talks and one of the only journalists to have extensively interviewed Madoff while he was incarcerated, joins the show to break down how Madoff got away with it, who helped him do it, and why it could happen again. But first, let's dig in. The U.S. equity markets continue to churn as the S&P 500 is coming off its second consecutive week of declines. That hasn't happened since February. And despite their recent struggles, tech stocks had a slight bounce last week as investors bought the dip. The Nasdaq closed higher for the first week in five, but is about 5% lower than its all-time highs. Money flows into global equities slowed to a trickle in the past few weeks, with only a little over $12 billion flowing into stocks just last week. Gold prices, the classic inflation and equity hedge, are up about 4% since their lows in late April. The super boom in commodity prices paused briefly last week, but it could be heading higher. Lumber prices have doubled from a year ago on short supplies and heavy demand from the housing sector. Copper prices soared past $12,000, and they're hitting levels we haven't seen since 2012. And corn prices are spiking, doubling in 2021 and heading to an all-time high. Bullish bets on higher corn prices this summer outnumber bearish bets by 17 to 1, according to the CME Group. Corn, the ultimate cash crop, is used in just about everything we use these days, from tortilla chips and chicken wings to bourbon and soda pop, as the Michiganers like to say, but its main uses are for livestock feed and fuel. About 40% of the U.S. crop, which totals nearly $60 billion and 14 billion bushels, is blended into motor fuel every year. Man, look at all that. Thank you, Blake. $1,370,000,000. That's the amount of money that was wiped out in the cryptocurrency market from its high on May 12th through its recent low on May 19th. That's according to our friends at Bespoke Investments. At the start of 2021, total crypto market cap was just about $759,000,000. So it lost nearly double that in just one week. Total crypto market cap reached a record $2.58,000,000,000 earlier this month. As of the low last Wednesday, it crashed more than 50%, down to just $1.2 Since Wednesday's low, the numbers come back up a little bit to about $1.7, $1.8 but crypto market cap is still down more than $800 billion from its recent highs. Why is this happening? Regulations are coming. There's no two ways about it. The IRS is cracking down on crypto gains from trading. The SEC is delaying approval of a Bitcoin ETF, and its chairman, Gary Gensler, is considering other regulations. And last week, the People's Bank of China and several Chinese payment processors said cryptocurrency is not an acceptable form of payment. That is curbing a lot of the recent enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies. Investopedia readers have been crashing the gates on our site looking for answers to their crypto questions. 
We've been tracking the questions you asked the most, and here they are, with a few answers whenever we can. Coming in at number one, what are the top cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin? Well, it seems investors are looking for alternatives, and they are easy to find. We have a full list on Investopedia, but if you want a quick list by market cap, it goes like this. Ethereum, Tether, Dogecoin, Cardano, Binance Coin, XRP, Internet Computer, and Polkadot, but there are hundreds more. Number two, what does it mean to HODL? Euphemistically, it means to hold on for dear life, and Bitcoin believers call themselves hodlers, but it actually comes from a drunk typo made by a Bitcoin investor on an online chat forum in 2013 who said he was hodling on to his Bitcoin despite a sell-off prompted by a crackdown from Chinese regulators. Sound familiar? Number three, what determines the value of one Bitcoin? Well, isn't that the problem? It's kind of hard to put a value on a currency that has no underlying asset. The value is determined by what the next investor is willing to pay for it. Technically, Bitcoin has a market value once it's mined, but once they're being publicly traded, the value is constantly shifting. Number four, how do I buy Ethereum, you asked? Well, everyone was running after Bitcoin and Dogecoin chasing Elon Musk's tweets. Ethereum was steaming to a 360% gain year to date as the Ethercoin was winning widespread adoption in the DeFi world. You can buy Ethereum on all the crypto broker sites. Number five. What happens to Bitcoin after all 21 million are mined? That's another one of the vexing questions about Bitcoin since it does have a finite supply. While the final Bitcoin is unlikely to be mined until around the year 2140, given how complex it will be to mine future Bitcoins, not to mention all the electricity use, it does make you wonder if Bitcoin will become more or less valuable as we approach 21 million. But that's a problem for another century. Interesting questions and check out investopedia.com for more on those answers. Let's get set up for the week ahead. It's the tail end of first quarter earnings season and corporate report cards have been better than expected. The problem is that those expectations were also expected and investors are looking for more reasons to keep allocating to stocks. Money flows into equities have slowed to a trickle in just the past four weeks. This week, we'll hear from big retailers, including Best Buy, Costco, and The Gap. They'll give us a good window into consumer appetites as inflation swirls across nearly every major product category. We'll get results from Snowflake, 2020's cloud computing darling. Cloud stocks like Snow, which has dropped nearly 18% year-to-date, have fallen out of favor in 2021. Salesforce and NVIDIA are also set to report results, and we'll see if they can reignite the tech sector. On the IPO front, ZipRecruiter, the online jobs market, is expected to make its debut on the New York Stock Exchange via a direct listing this week. ZipRecruiter itself is not selling shares with the offering and will not receive proceeds from the direct listing. Instead, shareholders will offer up to 86 million shares of Class A common stock for resale. Let's see how that goes. Direct listings are on a cold streak with investors right now. And we may hear more details about Robinhood's expected IPO. Valuation estimates on Robinhood range as high as $40 billion, and the online trading platform just announced it will allow its own users to buy IPO shares. Coincidence? You figured that out. That's why you are who you are. Thanks, Bobby D. Analyze this. Looking at the economy, the cooling of the U.S. housing market in the past month may show up in the Case-Shiller Home Price Index this week. The median sales price for a U.S. single-family home hit $347,000 last quarter, a 17% increase from the same period in 2020. But housing starts and existing home sales have started to slow, and that might impact home prices in the 20 cities the Case-Shiller Index measures. We'll also get a report on U.S. corporate profits for the first quarter. They will look huge compared to the first quarter of 2020, and they will likely be used as a poster child for higher corporate tax rates by the Biden administration. 
Speaking of the president, he will unveil his fiscal 2022 budget on May 28th. The Biden administration released a skinny version of the budget back in April. It proposed $769 billion in non-defense discretionary funding in fiscal year 2022. That's a 16% increase over last year. It also proposes $753 billion for national defense programs. That's only a 1.7% increase. Let the lobbying begin. There are heists, there are scams, and there are straight-up robberies out there in the financial world, but one crime rules them all, and that was Bernie Madoff's $65 billion Ponzi scheme that impacted some 720,000 investors around the world. Madoff died in prison last month at the age of 82, serving a 150-year prison sentence for securities fraud and other charges. To date, court-appointed trustees have recovered some $14 billion of an estimated $17.5 billion that investors gave Madoff over the course of several decades. While Madoff confessed to some of his crimes, he remained adamant that several co-conspirators pushed him even deeper into his Ponzi scheme, and there was no way out. There have been thousands of stories written about Madoff, several films, and many best-selling books, but only one journalist actually spoke to Bernie on the record extensively, and that's Jim Campbell, and he's written a new book called Madoff Talks, and he is our very special guest, on the Investopedia Express this week. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Caleb. It's an honor to be here. And as I was telling you, your Investopedia is in the footnotes. It does a tremendous job of taking complex financial terms and reducing them into an understandable manner. So they're right there for folks to look at as they go through the book. Well, thank you. And I found myself pouring into our dictionary, looking up terms and arcane investing topics and regulations about a hundred times in the past three days while I've been reading your book. So I know it well, and, and I've learned a lot just reading your book and, and going back to the site. I have thousands of questions, Jim, but we're on the express, so I'm going to pare them down. Let's start with you. You're a business journalist, but we won't find your column on Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal or the FT, even Investopedia. I don't see on CNBC all day long. Where do you fit into the galaxy of business journalism? Well, first off, that's because I'm a radio guy, and uh, this was my first book. I have a syndicated business talk show and a syndicated crime show called Forensic Talk. And the book emerged out of suddenly finding myself with 400 pages of communications with Bernie. And I figured this was something that had to be put into some format for folks to uh, be able to look at, as well as then best vetting everything he said. And the other thing I'll say is that I wanted to be the first to put the overall story into perspective, because most of it's untold from the systemic failure to the co-conspirators, to the feeder funds, on and on and on. And so that's how it happened. But I am not a business journalist, at least historically. Maybe coming out of this, there will be some interest in it. You're in the group now, my friend. So there's nothing you can do about that. Welcome. Happy to have you. Let me ask you this. How'd you get access to Bernie Madoff? Because I tried for three years and so did about 100 other people I know. You, but you've made a career out of speaking to big shots who run afoul of the law, like Dennis Kozlowski, Elliot Spitzer. How did you get to Bernie? My news director in the Greenwich Station is always joking. You have to be in jail to get on my show. Actually, very fortuitously, I was doing an interview with Laurie Sandell, who wrote a book that the family had cooperated with, meaning Andrew and his girlfriend, Catherine, mainly. They, they had Ruth in it, but she didn't really want to be, and she didn't like how she was portrayed. But anyway, she says, I'll hook you up with Andrew off the record, which kind of blew me away. So I talked to Andrew. I started right off with a barrage of brutal questions, including, shouldn't you be giving back money that your father gave you five million bucks in a couple of months before the thing went down? And he surprised me by saying, absolutely. We talked for a bit, and the show I was doing was live. He said, I'm going to watch tomorrow, Jim, to see that you're saying what you're saying now. He felt comfortable. Fortuitous coincidence number two, his mother was moving 
from Florida to Old Greenwich, where I live. I said, I'll take her to lunch. Took her to lunch. She walked into the restaurant, December, cold day, no one around, had sunglasses on, even kept them on for the first part of lunch, I guess. Proceeded to eat a chef's salad like she hadn't eaten in three weeks, and then was totally open, honest, good chemistry. We walked out of there. I said, can I get a picture? She said, you're wired, aren't you? And once I convinced her that wasn't true, she introduced me to Bernie and the rest is history. So describe to me the feeling of when you first spoke to Bernie on the phone from the prison where he was incarcerated in North Carolina. What was that like? First off, I got to disclose 100%. The prison vetoed me visiting him, so I did not get to see him. And you cannot legally tape phone calls on the prison system, nor go beyond 15 minutes. So our relationship was these long handwritten letters and then emails. His first handwritten letter, which was on the CBS Sunday morning news show that Jim Axelrod was blown away, was, my wife and my son have said you're a sincere person, so I'm going to talk to you. I think you can help dispel the myths and misperceptions around this case. I'm not sure I fulfilled that very well for him, but that's what started it. I said, Bernie, I'm going to vet every single word you said for the truth. You can talk to history through me, but I'm going to vet every word. He said, Jim, I accept those terms, and we went from there. Unbelievable. Bernie was a successful market maker. He was an innovator in electronic trading. He was successful on Wall Street. He was doing really, really well. What made him turn to crime based on your reporting and based on your conversations with him? And you're 100% right. His business was worth $3 billion at peak, exclusive of the hedge fund, which was the Ponzi scheme. And this was the big deal. Bernie maintained to me that the Ponzi scheme started in 1992. He told me a story he'd never told anybody else. And it's one that you might think there was some logic to. I got a great business. I got in trouble. I lost some money. I'm going to double down like a gambler's mistake and we'll get it back and no one will ever know. He told me that story. That was different than what he'd even told his own lawyer, who he allowed me to have waived attorney-client privilege. The fact is that when you uncover this, look at the forensics that were done, my own investigation, the Southern District of New York, the SIPC bankruptcy trustee, it looks like he started this thing side by side at the same time. The 19th floor of the Lipstick Building, top graduates, and you already alluded to it, top level of innovative technology, 17th floor high school, unsophisticated graduates who we could manipulate, and an archaic IBM AS400 that was obsolete as of the 1980s. One mind, compartmentalized, able to run one of the cleanest businesses on Wall Street and one of the biggest criminal enterprises side by side, probably likely the whole time he was in business, early 70s, probably started, maybe late 60s. Right. On that 17th floor or whatever, they were faking trades. They were creating fake statements, literally photocopying, pasting, making Xeroxes and doing it over the course of decades, according to your reporting. At one point, Bernie was the chairman of the NASDAQ. He's helping to build the rules and regulations that are going to govern electronic trading, right? We we were at the advent of electronic trading, yet he was living this duplicitous life, running this enormous Ponzi scheme. Did his knowledge of the system serve as his superpower to commit this fraud? Yes. In fact, you're also going to get a, a prime motivation, which was not greed. He had built up great credibility with the regulators. He designed his systems particularly to ensure his customers got best price execution, which with payment for order flow, as you know, it's a controversial thing right now with Robinhood, oh, often yeah. doesn't, often does not happen. And, and Robinhood was sanctioned for that. So he's built all this credibility up. And I think his mindset was this way, innovative, cost control. I'm making money up and down on commissions in the market maker, fit his profile perfectly. Comes over here, starts with 24 family and friends. Oh my God, I'm not going to make money on every trade. And he, and he couldn't take it, couldn't psychically deal with it. 
and um, really stopped trading uh, pretty soon after that and recovered even a small IPO loss of $30,000, which gave his investors a sense, I'm not going to lose money with this guy. He covers us when we lose. And I think that's what it was, a poor fit. And you're exactly right. The guys from the 17th had no idea what they were doing. They thought backdating trades was kosher. Trades were going out in Europe. So they were just entering it for data purposes. The amount of detail you dig up in the book, like the notes alone are a masterclass in forensic accounting and business journalism. So if folks want to learn how to really do that, read the back of the book because it is insane. But you write, the public Madoff was an industry leader in regulatory compliance and placing customers' interests first. The private Madoff was building this biggest criminal enterprise in Wall Street history. How could he have these two lives? And he was making a lot of money and spending a lot of money too. All I can say is that this psychic problem with losses and the need, Bernie would describe himself as often narcissists do as a victim. I had these greedy, relentless investors. I had to deliver. I always had to please. I had to give my son's money when I had no cash at the time. And he saw himself as always having to deliver, that there was no reason that he could ever say, hold it back, can't do that, here's a loss. He could have lost, Caleb. He could have said, oh my God, the market's down 40% by the end of 2008. That would provide him a convenient excuse to get rid of 40% of the money he didn't have. Couldn't do that. He showed gains actually in December of 08. He was driven by protecting the, the his name and the, the market-making business. He would never accept that the market making business was anything but 100% honest. Even after I found that they'd uncovered, he laundered $800 million of stolen Ponzi money from the JP Morgan 703 account in the back door through the trading PLs upstairs. He's investigated several times by the SEC, but as you write, he had them chasing the wrong rabbit. They came to the office like five or six times. Explain what you meant by that. Brilliantly exploited the silos, particularly back then, which is Broker-dealer examiners understand exactly how to trace trades and how to look at broker-dealers. They do not know how to look for Ponzi schemes, and they don't touch the investment advisory side of the business, which will surprise people when you think that Merrill Lynch has got one, they've got a broker-dealer side, you assume they're examining the whole deal. No, investment advisory examiners look at that part of the business. Bernie didn't register as an investment advisor. In 40 years, he was never looked at by people that would have looked at that. You could have uncovered this scam in five minutes in several different ways. He exploited that silo. The other thing he did was no one in the firm was allowed to talk to the SEC except for himself and his right hand, we call the cheat fraud perpetuating officer. No one else. Now, where else on Wall Street, first of all, does the CEO sit with basically entry-level lawyers that are sitting there doing examinations and let nobody in the firm, including his compliance heads, which was his brother. And they would catch him in lies, contradictions, not delivering reports, and never follow through. Amazing. He was adamant, Madoff, to you and to the public that his family wasn't involved except his brother. And you came to that conclusion too, basically, by the end of the book. The family experienced unbearable tragedy. Even after Madoff confessed, his son Mark took his own life two years to the day that Bernie confessed. Uh, his other son, Andrew, dies of cancer several years later. His wife wouldn't speak to him or visit him in prison. They met, like I said, when, when she was just 13. This was the only guy she really knew. How could they not know, especially given the, the ostentatious life they were living? And that's obviously a very good question. And there's two ways to look at it. One more on the psychological level, but the evidentiary level has to be looked at too. Once you understand Bernie, you know that Bernie could never have explained 
to his wife and his kids that he had to keep the business alive by turning to a criminal enterprise. He would never have told them that. The other thing was he kept his sons out, which I thought was a good thing. Andrew interpreted it as he was using us. Then you look at their behavior. The boys turned him in the minute they heard him. They didn't stop and hide their money or cover up or say, let's delay a week. They went to the feds and turned him in instantly. Andrew never said another word to him his whole life. Even when I said, talk to him for your own closure. Nope, he's dead to me. And I asked Ruth, what the heck did you say when, when he told him? And she said, what's a Ponzi scheme? Now, on the other hand, when I found Ruth was still balancing the 703 account uh, one year before it went down, and Andrew ran the market maker that that $800 million went through, I had to do a lot of investigation of myself. I ended up luckily finding the one guy in the firm who I could trust, who saw the P&Ls, who could explain what was really going on there. I do not think that they knew and were complicit. But let's be complete. They used that firm as a private piggy bank. And it was a private firm, but it was excessive. And that doesn't mean they're indicative of them knowing of the crime, but it's indicative of getting to a point where they were just stripping money out of that firm. Madoff spoke to you about four people who abetted his crimes and pushed him even deeper into this web of deceit. Briefly, who were they? And were any of these folks charged with a crime? Okay, Jeffrey Pickhauer, Norm Levy, Carl Shapiro, and Stanley Chase. And the big guy was Pickhauer, right? Pickhauer took $7 billion out of the crime. Most people have never heard of him. And of course, when they hear it's nine times what Bernie stole, it blows their mind away. He grew to detest Pickhauer because Pickhauer obviously grew to be able to extort his returns. And it reached a stage where he called Bernie or Bernie's right-hand admin and just dictated what his gains were. And then called up six months later to dictate what his losses are to get tax losses to cover things up. Stanley Chase, the smallest guy, even became a feeder fund. So he was making, Bernie passed all those fees on. And I just couldn't get over. He said, I don't want to know what the split strike conversion strategy is. I don't understand it. I just want no loss. That's it. Meanwhile, this guy was selling this fund to other people, basically admitting he had no clue what was going on and there could be no losses. These four guys, I call this a reverse Robin Hood because Bernie had a lot of average net worth who put money in over 30, 40 years. They were not wealthy guys. They became wealthy building it up. What Bernie was doing then was giving them a fake return, 11, 12, 15 percent, and giving these big four and his oldest customers 30, 40 percent or more. He was taking money from his poorer investors and giving it to his richer, like a reverse Robin Hood. Not one of them was ever prosecuted criminally. And what this was, aside from a Ponzi scheme, was a tax fraud scheme. And that's what these guys benefited from. And that was never investigated by the Justice Department for some reason. Yeah, they were chasing what they thought was the whale, which was the Ponzi scheme. But, exactly. But because they were making so much money, they needed to commit tax fraud to reduce their gains some way and take the sting out. Bernie was taking money up until the day he confessed, as you write. Was he pathological or did he still think he could get away with it? Or was he just in so deep, he's scrambling, holding on to the cliff with his bare fingers? It's kind of a combination of all those because he knew he did not want to be perp walked out of that firm. He knew they were running out of money. And he actually had a date in mind where he was going to default on a $250 million redemption to an overseas feeder fund called Optimal. And so it was all set up. It was even going to be near Christmas because the uh, deposits would be delayed by vacation days. He could get his firm through it without his their Christmas being ruined. And then he would go away and get arrested. He was going to tell his family then, and he was going to tell Ike Sorkin, his lawyers, so he understood how to get arrested. He panicked, couldn't do it, freaked out, 
And before they could cover it up, they were going to destroy everything. He had basically a nervous breakdown almost in his office and confessed. He was, again, he could never admit that this thing was going to be a failure. So he was taking money right up until the thing closed, including trying to get money out of the fund that he was going to default on at the end of December. Just desperate. And as you write, and as we've seen in the depictions in the movies, he's laying on his back in his office completely in a panic attack and can't move or he's staring out the window. So he knew it was winding down. Real briefly, I know this is super hard to do and you do it so well in the book, but how did this Ponzi scheme work with the feeder funds and the money from the big investors. Just give us the basics of of how he put this thing together, because it's complicated, but it's actually not that complicated when you look at how you put it together. It's actually a Jewish affinity crime. 85% of his investors and the Jewish charities that were wiped out. So it was right off the bat based on trust. I could never find a victim or a, even on the 1940s, sophisticated traders who understood what his strategy really was, even though it's conceptually very simple. Then he, he moves to these feeder funds when he scales this up to a, in what I call a major scale Ponzi scheme from the account by account basis. And he gave these feeder funds, he passed on the fees, which anybody who knows a hedge fund manager would never do that. And the feeders basically take 1% off the top for sending the funds to him, passed all of that on to them and didn't allow any due diligence. Okay. Most of the time, a lot of the time, didn't even explain where their money was going or that it was undiversified. He sent it in and then Bernie maintained custody of the assets, which is another huge no-no that should not have been allowed so that he basically could do whatever he wanted with the money. He co-mingled it in the 703 account at JP Morgan. That account, by the way, it should have been easy to uncover because you, you got to have counterparties and dividend payments coming in on an equity strategy. Not one dollar to a counterparty, not one dollar of a dividend ever. The same thing, the trade should have been clearing through the DTC, the Depository Trust Clearing. And Bernie gave them on a Friday night his account number, which was 646. And every trade in the market maker could go through there. Not one from the uh, IA Investment Advisory. The SEC didn't make the phone call. Then it was all automated off this computer. They would take prices and ta- uh, off the tapes of the legitimate business, right? And then run it through there and basically hand out baskets of money. Caleb had 250000 showing in his statement. So you would get five baskets if that was 250000 that was bought, would be bought and sold back and forth. You'd get this beautiful statement, highly detailed, listing all the securities, all the confirms in beautiful chronological order. Though if you look closely, a lot of them didn't have a commission in the commission box, even though he waived all those fees, right? Because he said he was taking commissions to cover up that he was actually running the fund. So the statements were fake. The trades were totally fake. The prices were often outside the pricing range of the given days. There were some days the exchange wasn't open. So there were all kinds of ways that it could have been uncovered. But people didn't understand it. And it was trust Bernie. Trust Bernie. He's the Jewish T-bill. He secures the government bonds. And basically, that's how you get away with it. And I, by the way, absent the 08 crash, he might be in business today. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the fact that it happens in the wake or in the middle of that, probably helped blow this up a lot. And there were people that were blowing whistles. Harry Markopoulos is one of them. There were others that were trying to blow the whistle on him. Nobody ever raised it to the level where the SEC was looking at that. So the question is, 
And you address this in the book. Could it happen again? And it's a weird question, Jim, because Ponzi schemes happen all the time. I read about them all the time. The SEC puts out alerts. But could another one of this scale happen again, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I went over this, especially with Markopoulos, because they wouldn't talk to Harry, as you know. And then they didn't understand him when he tried to. They thought he was a disgruntled competitor. But after it was all over, they invited him in and he helped design what they call the Madoff Ponzi scheme detectors. He says there are about 90% probability that they'll nail one now. But he says that if there is an offshore version of Bernie, it could happen again. And as you know, one of Bernie's, or as you may know, in the book, Bernie claims there's a lot of untold fraud in offshore hedge fund money that's unreported. And he thinks that's an, he thought that was an unheralded scandal. That's the only way. On the other ways, the SEC is basically, people think it's there to protect them. But actually, it comes in after the mess is made and cleans it up. And that part of the culture has not really changed all that much. Right. And they'll tell you that they need more money if they want to be a stronger enforcement division. And that is a big battle in Washington. Been going on for years. It'll go on for years. Jim Campbell, the book is made off talks. It's available everywhere you get your books. Check out Jim's radio show, Business Talk with Jim Campbell, plus Forensic Talk with Jim Campbell. I am so blown away with this book and this Herculean effort of business journalism. I got to say, I am so impressed. And, I, and I'm going to come up to Greenwich and I want to have a chef salad with you and find out more of how you do what you do. Thank you so much for being on The Express. Caleb, it's totally my honor. Thanks for inviting me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week, it's a twofer and it comes to us courtesy of Carl in Centerville, Alabama. Carl suggests fiscal policy versus monetary policy. And we like that suggestion because we're kind of in that part of the recovery where a combination of both has led to trillions in government spending to abet the recovery. That's the fiscal policy part of it. Stimulus checks, small business loans, and industry bailouts. And then there's the monetary policy part of it. Low interest rates and quantitative easing or bond buying by the Fed. Well, according to Investopedia, fiscal policy refers to the use of government spending and tax policies to influence economic conditions, especially macroeconomic conditions, including aggregate demand for goods and services, employment, inflation, and economic growth. You can thank the legendary economist John Maynard Keynes for modern ways of thinking about fiscal policy. He argued that economic recessions are due to a deficiency in the consumption spending and business investment components of aggregate demand. Keynes believed that governments could stabilize the business cycle and regulate economic output by adjusting spending and tax policies to make up for the shortfalls of the private sector. His theories were developed in response to the Great Depression, which defied classical economics assumptions that economic swings were self-correcting. The through line from Keynes goes through the New Deal in the U.S. in the 1930s, the Great Financial Crisis of 2008, and the recession brought on by the pandemic. The U.S. government has already committed $6 trillion in government spending to jumpstart the economy. More is coming. Monetary policy, the demand side of economic policy, refers to the actions undertaken by a nation's central bank to control money supply and achieve macroeconomic goals that promote sustainable economic growth. Monetary policy consists of the management of money supply and interest rates aimed at meeting macroeconomic objectives, such as controlling inflation, consumption, growth, and liquidity. Sound familiar? This is achieved by actions such as modifying the interest rate, buying or selling government bonds, regulating foreign exchange rates, and changing the amount of money banks are required to maintain as reserves. As we know, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. lowered the overnight lending rate to between 0 and 0.25% and promised to keep it there through 2023. It's also been buying $120 billion in government bonds every month, laying a safety net under the capital markets. 
When the Fed decides to taper those purchases and potentially raise interest rates, that's one of the hottest debates in the investing world right now. Good question, Carl. You'll be getting a pair of the summer stylish Investopedia socks for your suggestion. Throw them on for your next hike down to the Cahaba River. We're going to let Bernie Madoff take us out this week. Here's Madoff speaking from prison to New York Magazine reporter Steve Fishman in 2011. He was also just one of a handful of journalists or writers who spoke to Madoff while he was incarcerated. Here's Madoff trying to explain that most of his investors actually made money investing with him. All of my friends, all of my, most of my clients, the individual clients, all are not net losers. It was the people that came in very late in the game that, that, that got hurt. Right. So, so I, did I make a lot of money for people? Yeah, yeah, I made a lot of money for people. You know, did people lose uh profits that they thought they made yes you know but did they lose capital uh, i'm sure i'm confident that when this thing is all finished very few people if any will lose their principal but as we know from our conversation with jim campbell you made money if you were in early and had a lot of money to begin with Two hundred and seventy thousand people were impacted by madoff's crimes and countless lives were destroyed Well, that's it for this edition of the Express Crime Story. You never know where the tracks will take you sometimes. We're going to pull into the station for a couple weeks and retool our engines for a busy summer ahead. So we'll be back on the tracks with you on June 7th with a fresh episode of the Investopedia Express. Stay healthy, stay smart, and stay legal. We'll talk again a little further on down the line. (music) 